I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics. C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Speaking of Muses, I found out this really cool random story. I'm so excited to hear it. Yes, um... It was sort of David Byrne week a couple of weeks ago for me. Uh, Biggest regret of my life is that I didn't get tickets to that show. What was I thinking? It was unbelievable. What was I thinking? I have never seen David a show Byrne like that. David Byrne comes to Toronto, amazing venue, and I just don't get tickets. Yeah, next that's time, going down as one of my biggest regrets. It it was it was crazy. The entire band was up dancing the whole time. Like all like he had multiple drummers, each with one drum. They all danced. They all moved. It was all choreographed from beginning to end. It was so much fun to watch. It was the most unique performance I've ever seen, probably. It was really cool. Amazing. And before, um, I worked two nights of that, so I got to see it twice, and it was unbelievable. Uh, And the night before that started, I got to go see True Stories, which uh, is a film. Yeah, David Byrne, he wrote and directed and starred in it, and... There is a co-writer credit to a guy named Stephen Tobolsky. Um, if you look him up, you probably recognize him. He's like a character actor. Oh, he's yeah, in a for lot sure. Of stuff. Mm-hmm. He's in a lot of stuff. Um, he has a writing credit on it. So the guy who put on the show, uh, he got him to do an introduction for it. And he talked about how he didn't really like write too much of it or anything, but he still got the credit. And he talked about his friendship with David Byrne and how David Byrne was fascinated with him because apparently this guy, Stephen, can read people's tones. That's what he called it. 
um, he can't see things, but he has, like, I guess a psychic kind of gift. Like, he gets tones from people, and he can, like, I, I don't want to say guess, but he he can feel things off of people, and usually he's correct. And it's like Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, of course, David Byrne was fascinated by that aspect, and he decided to put a character in the film that can, like, read tones. And because it's a musical, uh, there is a song that the character sings, and it's about this character, and the song is called Radiohead. And that is where the band Radiohead got their name as well. Holy moly. So definitely, when you said that you had a muse story related to David Byrne, I definitely didn't think you were going to show me a picture of uh, a balding old older gentleman yeah who is balding with glasses no um isn't that like so random though it's and and i knew that radiohead i knew that they named their band after uh talking heads thing but then i didn't know specifically it was for it was from this movie from this movie. stories and wow. yeah this guy Stephen toblowski he is the real radiohead <laughs> So there you go. Good one. A little random news story there. I like it. Thank you very much. Uh, Now I'm going to take it way back because we're going to the 60s. I'm going to tell you all about Grace Slick. Uh, For this episode, I read her memoir. It's called Somebody to Love. You know, the name is familiar to me, but I can't think of a photo or like I can't. Yeah. I mean, you kept saying Grace Slick over and over again and... Okay, so Jefferson uh, Airplane. Okay. Somebody to love, White Rabbit. Yes. yes. When the truth is found to be Grace was oh, one okay, of the wait. Coolest. So her, that voice then yeah. at the beginning of our intro that the Rock and Roll Archaeology made for us, yeah, is hers. It's the first song that you hear in the intro for Rock and Roll Archaeology. She has one of the best voices, most unique for sure. Speaking of that, I think it's probably important to let people know, especially if they are listening from the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network iTunes. We, they release one of our episodes every two weeks. We release every Wednesday, but then we decide in two weeks which episode to send Rock and Roll Archaeology. So if you guys want more of what we're putting out, then you can come over to our iTunes or go on our website and listen every single week. Otherwise, we just sort of send one randomly or it's hard to say like which one we like better. But um, if you are really liking what you're hearing and you're listening from the Rock and Roll Archaeology, then that's where you want to go. And if you don't like what you are hearing on the Rock and Roll Archaeology and you're like, why is this all of a sudden the Muses and Stuff show? Then, um, as a Canadian, I feel compelled to apologize. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, you just showed me a picture of Grace Slick. She's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was. She had a really fascinating life. Uh, her book was really interesting. Um, it was one of... Usually when you read memoirs, 
they're ghostwritten by someone as well, right? People who aren't authors tend to need a little help sometimes putting together their their story. For sure. Um, and usually, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is with Grace's book, I really felt like I was hearing her voice. It, she's very sarcastic and she's got this like humor to her that might be off-putting to some people but is also funny to others and what year was the book written uh i I, I believe it was written in the 90s cool late 90s cool um like 98 99 uh she yeah i really could hear her distinct voice which was really cool to read a book because usually you know with some memoirs even good memoirs you're not you don't hear like that's exactly how they would have said that sentence. You know, that's exactly with her. It was like, she was telling me her story, which was cool. So I'm going to tell you her story now. Uh, She was born October 30th in 1939. Wow. Uh, She begins her book with this little credo that she's followed um, when she was young. And that sort of sums up her personality it is say what you mean mean what you say and throw a joke and a song in the mix now and then love it oh. yes I agree she was born grace barnett wing in chicago in a suburb called highland park uh, her parents were ivan and virginia they met at the university of washington uh, i believe her mom had dreams of fame and worked in Hollywood and in nightclubs for a while, like as a singer, but she gave up uh, those dreams because it wasn't exactly respectable because she married this investment banker and an investment banker's wife, you know, they don't do those kinds of things, especially back then. Mm -hmm. Um, When Grace was three, her dad got a job and they, or a job transfer and they moved to LA for a few years. And then once Grace was six, there was another transfer that took them to San Francisco. I wish my dad got a job transfer to LA. Do you know where my dad got a job transfer to? No. The Yukon. Oh no, no, <laughs> that's like the opposite direction of where you want to go. <laughs> the Northwest territory. <laughs> well, Grace had a great happy childhood. She was a very outgoing child. She had a wild imagination. She really loved reading and playing out the adventures in her books. Uh, when she was seven, she joined this weekly art class, which um, comprised of her and about ten elderly women. Cute. She really loved art. She loved acting, you know, becoming different characters to amuse her family and friends, one being Alice in Wonderland. That will come back later. Um, when Grace was ten, her brother Chris was born. Uh, the age gap meant that, you know, while she loved her sibling, like they weren't ever really close, you know. Uh, around that time, her dad got another promotion. He really worked his way up, and they ended up in Palo Alto. Uh, so when Grace entered the sixth grade, she met a new set of friends in this new uh, city or town or whatever Palo Alto you want to call it. Uh, and she met a classmate, and his name was Jerry Slick. So more on Jerry Slick later. I imagine. Yes. Um, Grace talks about being an awkward teen, very self-conscious, always trying to conform to fit into what she thought she was supposed to be. Um, I guess the way most teen girls grow up, she does more than once in her book kind of mention that 
she's always felt like the ideal woman is blonde with, you know, that perfect figure, you know, boobs and all that. And that's like the opposite of what she is. Yeah, Bridget Bardot. Exactly. Um, she, she did have a boyfriend or two in high school, but or Link Soliri. Ah, none were overly important to her. <laughs> um, she decided she wanted to go to New York City for college. Good choice, Grace. Um, she didn't actually want to attend college, though. She, but she knew her parents weren't just going to fund her going like wild in New York for nothing. So she ended up attending a place called Finch, Finch College, which was basically like a finishing school for wealthy women. So Grace first found out about her knack for singing by performing offensive but humorous jingles with her friends while she was out and everything. Into it. Yeah. Um, she also began, of course, getting into music more when she was in New York. She would listen to people like Odetta, who's, you know, a folk hero. And she actually went to see Odetta play in Greenwich Village. And it's pronounced Greenwich. <laughs> and she, uh, she, I, this is like the coolest thing. Like, imagine if this was a world where we could still do this. She goes to see Odetta. She just walks backstage into Odetta's dressing room. <sighs> And Odetta's just like, hey, what's up, you know? Uh, Odetta really was lovely, and Grace, I, I assume, told her, you know, I can sing as well. And uh, Odetta apparently really, like, encouraged her talent, but also kind of told her, you know, it's a, it's a rough road sometimes if you're going to go that way, but, you know, keep at it and everything. So that was a really cool moment she had with, you know, uh, a rock or a folk hero that she loved. Uh, Grace decided New York wasn't for her, and she ended up moving to Florida for her sophomore year of college. And (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I guess maybe warmer weather. Um, She attended the University of Miami, but that was also short-lived because Grace's friend Darlene sent her an article from the San Francisco Chronicle all about this kind of new phenomenon happening in the Bay Area, it was all about, like, hippies and music and marijuana. And her friend was like, I think you should come back west. Like, like come home, you know. Something's happening here. So um, this was still only around, like, 1958, though. So this is, like, really the beginning of the scene. Like, still kind of beatnik and everything. Don't picture, like, a full-out 60s hippie fest just yet. This is okay. more, you know, post or beatnik, get post-beatnik, that's kind of the vibe now. So Grace did move back home, and she tried to work some regular jobs. She was a receptionist. She worked market research gigs. Uh, she is basically just, you know, a young girl right now trying to find her place in life. Uh, now, her parents are really good friends with a family called the Slicks. And as we know, Grace knew Jerry from, you know, school back when they were kids solid name yes it is a good name so when grace came home she began seeing a lot of her old schoolmate jerry and grace talks about their relationship very matter-of-factly it definitely wasn't true love there was no passion it was a case of convenience and expectation by their families and by 1961 they were married now that's not to say grace was miserable uh she of course cared about jerry 
but it just wasn't like a passionate love affair. It was more like an arranged marriage. You know, this is what you do at this point in your life. Like this is the how guy old that's was around. she? Sorry, how old was she? Like twenty? Yeah, about about twenty one or so. Yeah. Um, so Jerry began going to San Francisco State to be a cinematographer, and Grace was working as a model at this point at a department store, and still, you know, trying to find her path. It's going to take her a few more years to find her ways, so let's cut ahead to 1965. Grace, Jerry, and Jerry's brother, Darby, decided to go to this club called The Matrix one night to catch a band called Jefferson Airplane. So The Matrix was actually started by Marty Balin, who was one of Jefferson Airplane's singers. Grace felt inspiration watching them, and when she realized that she could earn more money singing and, you know, having fun in clubs than working the regular job that she had, uh, the three of them, Jerry, Darby, and her, decided maybe we should start a band. So Jerry was on drums, Darby guitar. I think you think Jerry was on drugs. No, 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 drums. <laughs> well, they all were on drugs, but he was also on the drums. Got it. And Grace's vocals, of course, and they had another friend named Dave on bass. They called themselves the Great Society, and they began playing shows very quickly. Uh, They were a politically charged band. They wrote songs that, you know, fit the times and kind of grew a pretty good fan base over the next year. They actually began opening for bigger acts on the scene, Jefferson Airplane included. Um, I liked this quote in the book about uh, talking to fans who would come around. She said, There are no metal detectors, no security guards, no backstage passes, no VIPs at all. Everybody is us. Mm. So there's this real feeling of community in the San Francisco music scene, and the band even moved in together. So they're definitely entering that kind of hippie time. Okay, so people weren't paying $300 for a (laughs) VIP pass is what you're saying. Definitely not. Okay. They probably weren't even paying to get in the club. (laughs) Um, Can you find any of their music online right now? Like yeah, the yeah. Old stuff? Yeah. What was the first band called? Uh, they were called uh, The Great Society. <laughs> okay. The Great Society. Um, so, yeah, we're entering the communal hippie phase now. Grace talks about um, hanging out with friends, you know, smoking hash, talking politics and music. They're all discovering new things and Peyote and LSD were included in those new things. And basically, Grace's world, which was once, you know, kind of gray and like, where am I, is now turning the colors of the rainbow and everything's new. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So they're, of course, making friends with the fellow musicians in the scene, including the Grateful Dead, who had this ranch that everyone would party at. And she talks about hanging out with the Mary Pranksters, who are often guests like Wavy Gravy and Ken Kesey uh, and Neil Cassidy. Uh, I don't know if you know who those people are. Ken Kesey wrote One Fool Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh. Neil Cassidy was the man who inspired Jack Kerouac for oh. On the Road. I did not know that. Yeah. You know what I do know, though? There's a barber shop in my neighborhood called The Grateful Head. Oh, yeah. That's a good. That's a good one. They certainly had a lot of hair, too. (laughs) Uh, Janis Joplin's always around, of course. Um, Everyone was, like, drinking and swimming and smoking and partying. Grace said, everybody comes, anything goes, and the music drives the action. So it sounds like a real 
awesome place to hang out. So the Great Society did not last very long. They were only together as a band for about a year. Um, They were just moving in different directions musically, and they had even got on a contract with Columbia, but it just didn't work out for them. So two big things happened during their time together, though. Darby wrote a song for the band called Somebody to Love. Really? It was Darby, huh? And Grace wrote White Rabbit. Okay. Um, And she apparently wrote that on the piano all alone in about an hour. Some of the best songs were written in 15 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) So, of course, we know both of these songs would later become big Jefferson Airplane numbers. So around the time that Grace's band split, Jefferson Airplane's female singer, Sydney Anderson, um, she was getting ready to move and therefore leave the band. And Grace was hanging out one day with Jefferson Airplane when um, Jack Cassidy, their bass player, asked, like, would you maybe want to sing with us? So Grace was, like, thrilled by the idea. And um, she she was just beginning to rehearse with them. Uh, while Sydney was still around, kind of finishing up her last shows. But one night, Sydney didn't show up, and Grace was there, and they were like, well, it's your turn. So, your time yeah. Um, Grace says she was scared shitless because she hadn't rehearsed much, and by then, Jefferson Airplane was a pretty big band on the scene, and she couldn't hear a word she sang that night, and she never lost the fear while up there, but she got through it, and, she, you know, they stepped up the rehearsals, and she was part of the band now. It, like it was a good fit. So the band had already put out an album by this point. They were working toward their second, which would be, of course, Grace's first time in a studio, which was you know fascinating and exhilarating for her. Um, the album that they were working on would be called Surrealistic Pillow, and not very such a 60s, great name. I very mean, 60s. it's no, it's no Jerry Slick. Of course, Grace was very happy that she could offer the band those two amazing songs that came out of her Great Society time. Uh, They went to L.A. to record at RCA, and they were all staying at a cheap hotel called the Tropicana on Santa Monica Boulevard. Um, I have to read this directly because it's too good not to. Quote from the book. On one of our first nights in L.A., we were coming back to our rooms when we heard what we thought was a dog howling. On the balcony, crawling on all fours, was a totally nude Jim Morrison (laughs) barking at the moon. Oblivious to the contrast between his natural state and the urban slum look of Midtown L.A., he kept up the dog act even after Paul Kantner stepped over him to get to his room. It's our boy. (laughs) Yeah. Jimmy. Uh, what a weirdo. just love it. <laughs> so n- this is about the time where Grace and her husband, Jerry, kind of grow apart. She says, my marriage to Jerry was a throwback to the 50s way of life, which heavily impacted our relationship. There was no passion at all. There never had been, and when I started making music, I found a lifestyle I was far more attuned to. It was the way I pictured my life when I was a child. Hell yeah. Yeah. So her and Jerry wouldn't officially divorce until 1971, but from here on out, Grace is basically a single lady. He has his thing. He's in film. He's got his own life, and it sounds like it was you know, a mutual separation. They're both so engrossed in their separate passions now. 
You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. So, we are getting into the era of, you know, sexual freedom, and Grace very much embraced that. Yeah, so if you don't like sexual freedom, then just stop listening now. Absolutely. All about sexual freedom. She says, It wasn't surprising that musicians, because of their talent, humor, and proximity, made up the majority of my lovers. Yep. Yes. So while they're recording in L.A., Grace has a fling with her bandmate, the bass player Jack Cassidy. Um, Grace's next lover was Spencer Dryden, who was Jefferson Airplane's drummer at the time. It's a bit close, but all right. They actually dated for a while and even lived together. Uh, Spencer also became a muse himself. Grace found inspiration from their time together. She wrote a song about him called Lather. Um, In her book, she says, I loved all the men in Airplane, and I made love to all of them. Nice. Yes. At least the original lineup, except Marty, I should say. Poor Marty. Marty. Don't know why that never happened. Um, So soon the band began touring the States. Uh, Now, Grace was a badass on stage, and she was known for some wild shenanigans, uh, some of which she mentions in the book. Like, she'd handle asshole hecklers and, like, rude guys in her own unique way. Uh, on a friendlier night when some guy yelled, hey, Grace, take off your chastity belt. She yelled, I don't even wear underwear, and, like, lifted up her skirt to prove the point. Um, Another time they played the Whitney Museum to a crowd of, like, stuffy, rich, you know, patrons. And uh, it was her first time getting a cordless mic, and she decided to have some fun by insulting the crowd before the band even got on stage. Right. She said, hello, you fools. You got your Rembrandts on the mantle and a Rolls in the garage, but your old man still wouldn't know a clitoris from the, a junk bond if you had the guts to show him your twat in the first place. Oh, <laughs> so Grace does zing. It, yeah, Grace does admit that most of her outrageous behavior was influenced by the drugs and alcohol she was consuming at the time. She consumed, you know, everything, LSD, Coke, methadrine, marijuana, and alcohol was definitely her, like, number one go-to, which would become an issue for her later. And just for the record, you pronounce it clitoris? Clitoris. (laughs) Clitoris. (laughs) 
Um, she says, fortunately, our audiences were usually as fucked up as we were, so they pleasantly went along with whatever was happening. So things are going well for the band. Uh, Surrealistic Pillow went to number three on the Billboard charts, and soon they're going to head back into the studio to record their next album, which was called After Bathing at Baxter's. They had really unique titles. Um, and a year later, they, they released their fourth album, Grace's Third, uh, Crown of Creation. Okay. So when they weren't touring, they were doing what most West Coast musicians were, you know, hanging out either in San Francisco or in Laurel Canyon. Oh. So she talks about some of our favorites. to go to the... Yeah, right? She talks about Zappa. She says... I'm just going to say Surrealist Pillow was like right up Zappa's alley. Oh, yeah. Frank's house looked exactly like a troll's kingdom. Fuzzy-haired women plunged, or lounged, sorry, plunged, lounged in long antique dresses, and naked children ran to and fro while Frank sat behind piles of electronic equipment discussing his latest ideas for orchestrating satirical hippie rock music. If you're wondering if Grace mentions groupies, she does, though she seems a little ill-informed. She said, Laurel Canyon had its own particular form of budding artists, a group of girls who worked in plaster. These artists, known as the plaster casters, got their hands on more dicks than well-known groupie Pamela DeBar, or me, or anybody else for that matter. Touting their casts of rock star penises as sincere artistic endeavor, these girls managed to lure more than a few willing subjects. No surprise there, of course. What big egoed rock star wouldn't want his cock immortalized in soapstone? So Grace says, you know, these stories are legendary, but she's never actually seen the results and kind of makes a joke about sending her information on them. So hopefully, since her book has come out, Someone has informed her about Cynthia Plastercaster that she wasn't from Laurel Canyon. She was from Chicago and, mm-hmm. you know, a little more about the GTOs and everything. And, of course, her cast still do exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully Grace is I done. can't. I w- will. I'm willing into existence um, a photo of me and you standing with Cynthia Plastercaster <laughs> and those rock. Oh. Those rock penises. That has to happen. Someday. It will happen. It will. It will. She's so awesome. She's so fun. So, yes. She spent a lot of time in Laurel Canyon, and she was really good friends with David Crosby. And so, of course, she was running into, like, Joni Mitchell and Crosby. Or, well, obviously, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and, you know, all the rest of them. She knew Yeah, Crosby, Stills, Nash, etc. Exactly. So, Grace is, you know, in the inner circle here, of course. Um, Grace talks a little bit about her friendship with Janis Joplin in the book, though not as much as I expected. Um, she talks about their famous photo shoot with Jim Marshall and how, uh, to play a joke on him, they decided instead of being their, you know, fun selves, they refused to smile and kind of stood there stony-faced and all serious. But, of course, great photos came out of the session. Um, of Janice, she says, Janice felt like an old soul, a wise, cracking grandmother whom everybody loved to visit. She knew more than I did about how it was, but she lacked enough armor for the inevitable hassles. She was open and spontaneous enough to get her heart trampled with a regularity that took me 
30 years to experience or understand. There's only about two pages about Janice and nothing about her passing away or anything. Um, but since they're, you know, forever linked through photos and everything, I just wanted to throw that part in as well. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Janice Joplin song? Mm, no, I don't think I do. I really like Work Me Lord when she performs that live, especially like uh, like the Woodstock one. And it's so good. It's like you can hear her pain, you know. My dad has a great story about her. Did I ever tell you? No. Well, it's not great. It's sad. Um, he went to see her perform once, and uh, he was standing by the side of the stage, and he could see her just off stage, like, right before she was about to go on. And she was standing there all alone crying. Oh. And my, like, every time my dad mentions it, whenever, like, there's a Janis Joplin song on or anything, like, I can see him kind of go into that teary-eyed. Like, it really affected him seeing her so sad. Oh. Yeah, now that you're telling me, like, no, you you yeah. have told me before. All right, oh, but it's still sad. I know, I know. <laughs> the second time around. Janice is just such a beautiful soul. Yeah. Getting back to the band, after they recorded Baxter's, they flew to Europe to co-headline a tour with none other than The Doors. <laughs> so it was on this tour Grace began to get close with her bandmate, Paul Kantner, um, but she also got real close to Jim Morrison. Okay, thank you. That's yes. what I was waiting for. I'm like, yeah, great. All these guys in the band's fine, but like literally every other woman alive, Grace was attracted to Jim's <laughs> strong presence. And um, after one night on the tour, she plucked up the courage to knock on his hotel door. So he opened it. He invited her in. Uh, Grace noticed this room service plate of strawberries and kind of brought them over to where Jim was on the bed. And uh, Grace sat them down, and Jim picked one up and squeezed it until it, like, turned into juice into his hand and kept repeating it while laughing. Now, this may sound like it's going to turn into, like, a sexy nine-and-a-half-week scene, but Grace describes it as more of, like, kindergarten nonsense. Um, Until he abruptly stopped, got up to where she was, which was, like, the end of the bed, and, okay, now get ready. Things are about to get steamy. Ready. Or you could say someone's fire is about to be lit. Oh, yep. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, she said, this was new, like making love to a floating art form with eyes. I'd never had anybody study me like that. It wasn't the standard evaluation of body parts. He seemed to be appraising the distance between us as if it was an invisible garment that needed to be continually breached with each motion. With our hips joined together and his body moving up and down, it felt like he was taking a moment each time to circle the area between our bodies and his eyes and consider the space that had separated us. It's getting steamy. He was a well-built boy his cock slightly larger than average, and was young enough to maintain the engorged, silent connection right through the residue of chemicals. At the same time, he was surprisingly gentle. It's interesting. The most maniacal guys on stage can be such sublime lovers. Jim mystified me with that otherworldly expression, and his hips never lost the insistent rolling motion that was driving the dance. So both, right? I had to I had to just like quote it all directly because that that's just too good. Yeah, that was good. Both Jim and Grace, as we know, were in relationships. She's still with Spencer, but that's pretty much over. 
Um, and after the tour, Spencer would end up with Sally Mann, who, if that name sounds familiar, Sally Mann was actually one of Baron Woolman's groupies from the Rolling Stones. Oh. You can look up photos of her. She's the girl with, like, the vest on and the jeans. Yeah. And she's got, like, cute little things on her face, and she was really pretty. Um, Here's another, t- like, put it on the list of, like, dream things to do. Have Baron Woolman. Oh, yeah. Take photo. Oh, God, yeah. Whew. Um, So Grace decided, you know, I'm in a relationship. Jim's in a relationship. I, I should just leave right now. So after they had sex, she was getting dressed. Jim was naked on the bed with his eyes shut. And he said to her, why wouldn't you come back? And she said, since I hadn't said anything about coming or going, I didn't know what he expected to hear, so I said, only if I'm asked. He smiled, but he never asked. Mm, That one night of up and down circling between bodies and eyes was just that perfect moment. Probably would have ruined it if she had to spend more time with him because we know he's a maniac. (laughs) Have that perfect moment and enjoy it. Maniacal is one of my favorite words. Right? It definitely uh, suits Jim Morrison, that's for sure. So it was after Jim and once Spencer and Grace officially split up that her and Paul Kantner became an item. So we'll get back to that, but let's first talk about Jefferson Airplane's involvement in three of the biggest music festivals in the 60s. Woodstock? Yes. The first one was before Um, Woodstock, though. Wait. I don't know. Okay. The first happened in June of 67, and that was Monterey Pop. Okay. So I wouldn't have guessed that. Big festivals like this are normal now, but back then they were quite a special thing to be involved in, and especially, you know, if it ran smoothly as Monterey did. Uh, Though Monterey did experience financial issues, she mentions Jefferson Airplane and some other bands never got paid. Uh, Grace did love the experience as well as seeing so many great acts, uh, the standout performance of that concert was, of course, Jimi Hendrix, who ended up setting his guitar on fire. Mm. That was that performance. Um, in the Monterey Pop documentary, during Jefferson Airplane's part, you can see Grace lip-singing to the song Today of theirs. It's Jefferson Airplane. But that's actually a song that Marty sings. And she mentions that Marty was maybe not at all that pleased that... It appears that Grace is singing the song in the documentary and not him. Since it's but him it's his singing. voice? Yes. But it looks like she's singing. Yes. Cause but wouldn't people know that she's not singing? Is it, is there, are there voices yes. that similar enough? No. Oh, okay. But apparently, I don't know if it was an editing mistake or what, but I guess because she was getting the attention still. Okay. So two years later, Jefferson Airplane would take the stage at... Woodstock, like you mentioned. So while Woodstock is remembered as this great success, the festival itself was pretty much a disaster. Um, They hadn't anticipated the number of attendees being that high. The majority didn't even buy tickets. Instead, they were hopping the fences. You know, resources had to be flown in. Highways were at a standstill. It was was crazy. Um, It ended up raining. You know, people were scrambling to protect the electronics. It was an absolute financial disaster. Like, we're talking over half a million in 1969. 
but an incredible success when it came to like the message. Uh, the band was flown in from their hotel in a helicopter since it was impossible to reach the farm otherwise. Uh, Grace, this part in the book was like really special, so I'm going to kind of directly quote from her again because it's just so beautiful. Uh, Grace says, We soared down over a field of muddy but smiling faces a little before 9 p.m. That was the time we were to perform, and I felt magic in the blue-black night as we got out of the helicopter and placed our feet on the stage. But due to transportation and scheduling fuck-ups, we didn't go on until sunrise. Seated for nine hours in a darkness broken only by the towering beams of spotlights, I was part of a congregation of musicians from the tribes of a temporarily undivided state. No bathrooms, my body seemingly obeying a higher order shut down, and I had no need. No chairs, we gathered on the floor of the gigantic stage to watch and be watched without the heavy cover of imperatives. We partook from each other's stash of fruit, cheese, wine, marijuana, coke, acid, water, and conversation. We were all shamans of equal power, channeling an unknown energy, seeking fluidity. I felt like a princess in a benign court, one without thrones or crowns. I could see royalty in every direction. The audience was just more of us. The performers were more of us. So much of Woodstock's appeal was the chance to simply come together and touch what we knew had already taken birth. It was something that had formed from the energy of the invisible collective consciousness. It was our turn. We were ready to breathe, ready to celebrate change. That's so nice. And especially that idea of togetherness and, like, no real separation, us and them. Yeah. Because, you know, it wouldn't take too long after that before the rock and roll egos came in. Absolutely. And there was a huge separation. Yeah. And it is us and it is them. Yeah. And we are up high and they are down low. And that separation still continues. Oh, for sure. Um, She says, like, more beautiful things about the experience, but... I'll leave that for, re- you know, people who want to read the book. Uh, I just thought that was so magical. Now, the third festival was, of course, the Notorious Ultimate. Ball. Yes. Ultimate. Yes. That's what I was thinking. And I was like, oh, no, maybe it wasn't until a little bit later. But, yeah. So, for those who may not know the history of Ultimate, let me fill you in a little bit. After Woodstock, everyone was riding that high. Absolute shit show. Oh, yeah. Um, they thought it would be this amazing experience if they could bring what happened in New York over to the West Coast. So Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead actually decided to create their own outdoor concert at Golden Gate Park in in San Francisco, and they wanted the Rolling Stones to headline. So it was their idea? Yeah. Oh, crap. So Grace and Paul Kantner actually went to Mick Jagger's home in London to discuss the idea. They agreed. Now, two days before the concert was supposed to happen, their park permit was turned down. So they had to scramble to find a new location, which ended up being Altamont, located about 40 minutes outside San Francisco. So the day arrived. It was gray and ugly. The vibe from the get-go was just not... No one had good feelings. Pretty sure Miss Mercy predicted it. Yeah, everything felt off about it. Uh, now, both Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead had used Hell's Angels as concert security before with no issue. So I guess when they decided to use them again, it wasn't the weirdest decision. But this time, some genius decided, maybe we should pay the Hell's Angels with $500 worth of beer. 
So they were all loaded and, like, ready to fight before the concert even began. And when Jefferson Airplane went on stage, they went on second after the Flying Burrito Brothers. Um, the first incident happened. So when Marty was looking into the audience, he saw some poor guy getting beaten up by one of the Hells Angels, and he jumped off stage to help him, and Marty came close to being beaten himself, but, you know, crew kind of came to protect him, and he got away fine. Um, many people, I, I mean, have reported seeing plenty of other, you know, fist fights and everything happen between a concert goers and Hells Angels. Uh, but the big tragedy, of course, came when the Rolling Stones finally took the stage. Uh, by then, the atmosphere hey, was like everybody be cool gym. down there. Stop messing around. Exactly. Uh, when the band performed Sympathy for the Devil, another big fight erupted in front of the stage. And as you said, the band actually had to stop playing uh, for a while to like calm things down. And Jagger addressed the crowd, be cool, don't push. Um, the band continued playing, and it was while they were playing under my thumb that another eruption happened, and this time an 18-year-old man named Meredith Hunter was stabbed to death by a Hells Angel. Now, Sad. the autopsy reported Meredith had been quite high on meth, and he apparently like, had tried to get on the stage, and a Hells Angel kind of beat him and forced him back into the crowd. And he was with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend kind of begged him, like, let's move back. Like, let's not go back up there. But instead, he went toward the stage again, and this time he had a pistol with him. And he took out the pistol, and that's when the Hells Angel stabbed him. That Hells Angel, his name was Alan Passero, he ended up getting acquitted for the murder. Um, the craziest part of all of this, of course, is that the Maisels, who are an incredible documentary team, their brothers, uh, they have, like all their documentaries are worth worth watching, but they were filming all of this. So there's a documentary called "Give Me Shelter," and all of this is in there. You can see everything. Everything happened. Uh, I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't. I also looked on YouTube, and both Jefferson Airplanes and the Stone sets are on there, so you can watch some of the performances and sadly, like the murder occur. Um, also, go to the Please Kill Me website, and you can read about Miss P's story that has to do with Altamont. Uh, yeah, she was there. So, Jefferson Airplane had just gotten into a helicopter when the murder happened and could, like, see the chaos from below, but only found out about the murder after the fact. Um, Ralph Gleason from the San Francisco Chronicle wrote about Altamont after, and he said, In 24 hours, we created all the problems of our society in one place, congestion, violence, and dehumanization. The name of the game is money, power, and ego. So this happened only months after Woodstock, like right at the end of 1969, and of course many consider this, along with the Manson murders, as like a turning point of like the death of like the peace, love, hippie dream. And yeah, that yeah. happened in August, eh? The Manson murders. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think people are sort of. I saw some posts being like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're getting it's August. Yeah, it's about that time. I think it happened like in a few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So." In 1970, Grace got an invitation to the White House. Nixon was president. His daughter, Trisha had gone to the same finishing school, Finch, in New York as Grace, though not at the same time as when Grace was there. Uh, it was a miracle she got the invite since she was known as, like, a lefty, as they called it. 
Um, but she did. She did get this invitation, and she figured it would be the perfect opportunity to kind of, like, shake things up. So she invited her good friend, Abby Hoffman, to be her escort. So for those who don't know who Abby is, he was a political activist, um, very against the war, like all Nixon stood for. He was part of the Chicago 7 or 8, if you count the other one that wasn't part of the trial. Um, Really interesting history. Abby Hoffman, he's fascinating. I highly suggest if, you know, you want to dive into 60s uh, history, look him up. Uh, He was quite influential. He wrote a book back then called Steal This Book, which a lot of people did, and like a lot of bookstores wouldn't carry it, uh, which was basically about teaching people to live without money, like how to fight the government, that kind of thing. So he was – like the FBI had plenty of stuff on him, like CIA probably. Like You get the point. Yeah, yeah. So Grace and Abby headed to the White House on a mission to spike Nixon's tea with acid. Now – Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful because even with her invite. Nice idea, though. Yeah. I mean, that's such a 60s idea, too. Like, let's spike Nixon. She had this invite, but security ended up turning her away because they were deemed security risks. (laughs) Rightly so, apparently. Nice instincts. Um, Well, Abby was turned away. Grace kind of refused to go in without him. Uh, It would come as no surprise to anyone that since Jefferson Airplane was, you know, considered a political band and disagreed with the way the government was running things and everything, they often got hassled by the cops on um, on tour. They were often busted uh, for, like, everything imaginable. In her book, she goes over, like, so many different things. Uh, smoking pot, having paraphernalia, saying fuck on stage. Uh, Grace got maced by the cops once for standing up for a friend who had just got maced by the cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would get maced for you. Aw, I would get maced for you. Oh. Fuck them. <laughs> Mace me. Um, happier news, though. Uh, Grace and Paul, they were now living together. They decided... Let's start a family. Let's have a baby. So on February 25th, 1971, their daughter, China Kantner, was born. Uh, There's a famous rock and roll legend here. Even after going through childbirth, Grace was still, you know, packing her sarcastic humor. And when the nurse asked her what her baby's name was, Grace replied, God. We spell it with a small G because we want her to be humble. Oh, that's good. Now, the nurse asked her to repeat it, so she did, and the nurse did not get Grace's sense of humor, and she actually wrote God down on the sheet and then promptly called the San Francisco Chronicle, which published the announcement of the birth with God as the name of her kid. Oh, brother. Yeah. Um, China isn't the only collaboration that happened between Grace and Paul. Uh, from 1970 to 1973, they released three albums together, like so separate from Jefferson Airplane. Uh, one of the albums called Sunrise features their baby China on the cover. And of course, Grace wrote a song about her little muse called mm-hmm. China on the album. Okay, uh, can I just say this one yeah. thing? Uh, can I can I just say this one thing? Whatever. I, <laughs> um, I put that post up about what music video was involved in your sexual awakening, and somebody wrote "China Girl" by David Bowie. Have you ever seen that video? 
Yeah, that's a weird one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not what I was expecting, and I'm Bowie's watching the video choice, going, holy moly, this video is would not be okay by today's <laughs> standards. But I do see at, the, like, the end there was a scene where he was rolling around on the beach, and you could see, like, his tongue going into her mouth. And, like, I get uh, that. Okay. But he actually, like, takes his fingers to, like, the corners of his eyes at one point. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think... Iggy Pop also did that song. I'm um, like one. I think Iggy Pop might have written it, or I. They collaborated. I'm pretty sure for that number. She says, "Shh." Yeah. <laughs> so Jefferson Airplane released albums in '71 and '72, but by then the band was kind of restless, and no one seemed to vocalize it but they were all kind of looking toward the future and you know other possibilities like should we split like what's going on um they even had a song on one of their albums titled third week in chelsea that's like about them wanting to break up but like not knowing how to (laughs) um this ended up kind of being a dark period for the band and for grace who was now turning a lot more toward alcohol and cocaine to kind of numb her feelings over the situation uh, finally, the decision was made to move on. That was around 1972. Uh, of course, not all of them moved on completely. Basically, uh, a couple of them formed their own band called Hot Tuna, and Grace, Marty, yeah, Grace, Marty, and Paul, no. <laughs> um, along with some of their friends, uh, would soon form Jefferson Starship. So on Starship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? They go into the the 80s and everything as Starship. Right. So on Starship's first tour, uh, Grace would meet the next important man in her life, uh, their new lighting director named Skip Johnson. At the time, Skip was 22, Grace was 34. Uh, She was also still with Paul, but she just couldn't resist Skip. Um, she was able to have a tour fling with him under Paul's nose because Paul dismissed Skip as gay simply because Skip had dressed up like a woman for his 23rd birthday, and that was enough, I guess, for Paul. Gay. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, people do one thing one time. And uh, yeah. Like, exactly. Um, but, I, this, I mean, it sounds awful, but After the tour, a new woman would also come into their lives named Cynthia Bowman, and she became the band's publicist, and Grace could tell kind of right away that there are vibes between her and Paul, so I guess that kind of helped Grace justify her cheating. Oh. Um, I don't think Paul ever married uh, Cynthia, but they did end up dating for a long time, and she would have Paul's second child, giving China a a half-brother named Alexander. But that happened like five years later, so not right away. Um, One interesting thing Grace talks about in her book is the relationship she has with her ex's next loves. Like her ex's new girlfriends. Okay. Um, She remained friends with both Cynthia and Sally Mann. Um, She says, one of the strongest bonds you can have with a person is the love of the same man. Jealousy is useless. The attraction both of you have for the same individual means you have a strong interest in common. So why not create a friendship instead instead of going on sucking on old resentment? Sure. That's one way to look at it. Yeah. I totally agree. 
I share some exes with friends. Oh, yeah. I share one ex with one of my best friends. But every time his name comes up, we will just kind of, like, look at each other and just, like, shake our heads yeah. and squint our eyes. That was a mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's, just, like, the general feeling with my friends with shared exes as well. Actually, um, this summer, I went and spent time with one of my best friends. And she was, and it was like a girls' weekend. She said, "Oh, this girl's coming over, and uh, actually, she dated so and so after you. Yeah. He was like with her as our relationship was ending. Mm-hmm. So for during that time when we were in it, I was like angry at her. Let's say, like I didn't even know who she was. Yeah. She wasn't even like from town, really." But then afterwards, I just felt bad for her because I knew probably what he had put her through. Mm-hmm. And then so after, like, you know, she'd been around for a while and we'd had, like, maybe a drink or two. I was like, so, yeah. you, you dated him too, eh? And she just went off on, like, <laughs> he wasted a year of my life. Aww. What? He was awful. And I was yeah. just like, mm-hmm. That's the thing, right? Like, it's. The guy that's usually the problem. It's not. Like, yeah. It's their choice. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, Grace didn't deal with the Skip Paul situation in the best manner. Uh, Paul only truly found out about the affair when John, their drummer, informed him about it. Grace really didn't do much to hide it from the band, and that no doubt put them in an awkward situation. And I guess finally, he couldn't take. Paul looking like an ass anymore, you know, on tour. This led to Skip being fired and Paul and Grace calling it quits. Um, They remained friends and they never had any, you know, custody battles or anything like that. So, well, it's always, you know, difficult to move forward. They did so in the best way they could. Um, Grace ended up actually moving in with Sally Mann, who I'm assuming had also split up with Spencer. She was moving in with Grace. Um, Skip would also move in, and now that he and Grace were official couple, uh, and because he was really good at his job, he got rehired by the band after Paul, you know, got over the, you know, anger of that situation. Um, while they were on tour in 1976, Skip asked Grace to marry him. All right. And at the end of the tour, they tied the knot in Maui. So, uh, by I want to get... Mawied. Mawied. Yeah, exactly. M- married in Maui? Married or in Maui. 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 Um, by 1978, Grace was at another low point when it came to the band and was acting out on stage, getting really wasted, being angry with the crowd, the band, everything. Uh, she decided it was time for her to leave. Unfortunately, her alcohol issues kind of followed her home, and she admits to drinking and driving many times in the 70s something she obviously regrets and so did my mom yeah (laughs) and i'm sure your mom is also thankful you know she didn't hurt anyone that you know something that could have been very this is what we did it's just what we did yeah um she had multiple incidences uh incidents with the law well, under the influence in the 70s um, until she was finally told, like, you can lose your license if you don't start attending AA meetings. Um, so she did go. She actually found herself, uh, I, I don't want to say, like, enjoying because that's not really the right word. Uh, she found herself getting something positive out of the experience. Um, though AA didn't entice her to stay sober, just kind of stop drinking and driving and 
she also did end up going to rehab. Uh, I think from like the late seventies into the eighties, she was like sober, but also not like she, she had her moments where she wasn't always on the wagon. Let's just put it that way. Um, Grace actually released a solo album in 1974, going back a few years, titled Manhole. And during all of this, um, she began working on her next one during, like, her battles with alcohol called Dreams. Uh, Grace always loved writing music, and she wrote a lot from her experience. This was probably her most personal work. Uh, She released two more solo, solo albums. Um, 1981's Welcome to the Wrecking Ball, and in 1984, her final one called Software. Uh, they weren't big hits, but she never toured them or, you know, tried to make them big hits, so that's kind of She expensive. didn't have Instagram. Exactly. No social media back She didn't then. have uh, Instagram ads sponsored by. Exactly. So, overall, she found solo work kind of nerve-wracking she really did prefer to be part of a band or as grace puts it masturbation is fabulous but nothing beats the old tango okay so grace got to tango again with her starship pals in the 80s when pretty sure that's actually a vibrator company tango tango by we vibe this episode is sponsored um in the 80s, Jefferson Starship invited her back to do some backing vocals and some duets. Um, by the mid-late 80s, Jefferson Ar- Starship turned into simply Starship, and as Grace puts it, sold out. Um, money and making hit records became like a lot more important than writing their own, you know, and they were such a political force back in the day, and like that was kind of all thrown away. Uh, Starship did have huge hits, like... Um, we built this city. Oh yeah. Uh, nothing is gonna stop us now. Uh, they, you know, had major hits, but they just weren't written by them, and they didn't care about the music. So Paul Kantner was, you know, not happy at all with the direction they'd taken, and he left around 1984, and even took legal action over the band name, which settled out of court. Um, well, Grace wasn't exactly thrilled about the new material. She called it M-O-R, middle of the road. Um, she was in a better place by then after rehab. I believe she was sober for like the, at this point. She was happy, kind of enjoying what she called an easy ride. So she was like, let's just do it. And Skip, <laughs> Skip became their lighting tech again. And uh, they toured some more. Uh, Grace was now kind of the last remaining member of the original lineup, though. And this would come to an end kind of quickly, though, because the new singer, Mickey Thomas, saw himself more as a soloist. And he was not fond of the duets. And Grace really didn't put up in a fight or anything. Her heart wasn't in it. She was just doing it, you know, for something to do. Uh, It was also in the late 80s that Grace became an animal rights activist. She just happened to see this piece on a newborn panda on the news, which led her to, like, learn about them and learn more about animals and, like, animal testing and animal rights and all of that. And she really became an advocate for them. And it's something she's still extremely passionate about. Nice. Yeah. Uh, It was also in the late 80s when Skip and Grace began to have some marital problems. Skip had admitted to Grace that he had some flings on the road and had also been seeing a woman for some months. 
uh, they tried to make it work, but the time finally came when they realized, like, you know, they weren't doing anyone any favors by staying together, and they officially got divorced in 1994. Um, Grace's last that I know of, run-in with the law, also came in 1994. Uh, her new boyfriend and her had had a fight. He called the cops. They came to her house at 3 a.m., and Grace had had a gun with her. And she's, you know, hearing this banging on the door. So she got her gun, and cops came. Long story short, she was arrested for pointing uh, the gun, which was unloaded, by the way, at an officer. Um, she ended up having to do 200 community service hours and AA again. <laughs> I don't blame her for being terrified about, you know, have you ever heard a cop knock on a door before? They do not mm. just tap. They, like, they try to scare the shit out of you. It's like, like, it's scary. Very scary. Okay, I'll have to take your word for it. Um, in 1998, I have never personally had a cop scare me. Just on my for the record, <laughs> folks. Um. But I know that's what they do. Okay. Uh, in 1998, Jefferson Airplane did a reunion tour with all the members except Spencer joining. Unfortunately, he was too ill. But it was a really great experience for Grace. She says, by the time it was over, we traded a lot of energy, renewed our friendships, and had closed some uncompleted circles. So with everyone older and so sober, you know, all the old issues kind of faded. They really just had a blast. She said it was the best tour she, like, she ever had with the band. Good. Yeah. Um, Trading that energy. There's a reason that you don't see Grace anymore, you know, doing reunion tours or special appearances. Um, first of all, she feels that playing the same song at night after night for decades just isn't for her. And the other reason is aging. Even in the 80s with Starships, she said, I was keenly aware of how strange it was to be a middle-aged person on a rock and roll stage. Um, this isn't just an opinion on herself, though. She says, I consider rock and roll to be a young person's game. Old farts leaping around on, uh, and trying to hang on to their flapping skin is not an <laughs> uplifting experience for me either to watch or perform. There are cer certain, sorry, there are certain kinds of performances that simply don't lend themselves to wrinkles like hard rock. Uh, she really seems to have a thing with about aging in her book. She really mentions it quite a lot and looks in general, um, which I'm sure you know many women deal with. I hope she's not too hard on herself. It kind of felt like she is. Uh, also, I don't agree with that. I just saw the Rolling Stones last month, and they did not stop moving on stage. And Jiggle even David Byrne in the wind. Who David Byrne is like 66, and he was dancing the whole time. Like they blow me away. They, yeah. Yeah. If you if Women you still know, have the, the energy, pressure is uh, yeah, unreal. it is different. It is different, that's for sure. Um so Grace put her artistic passion instead from music. She's now into painting. Nice. Uh you can find her work online. I'll link it up of course. Uh she incorporates rock and roll into her artwork. She does tons of paintings of like all her friends. Uh Janice, Jerry, Jim, Jimmy, all the J's. She does all the J's. Um, she does paintings of like Monterey Pop and Woodstock. And of course, she has tons of Alice in Wonderland inspired ones. Still uh, loving the White Rabbit, I guess. Um, China Slick, her daughter, also had her time in the spotlight. At 15, she became MTV's youngest VJ oh, on cool. summer breaks. 
I believe she did the summer break VJ thing for like four years. Uh, she also in the nineties got minor roles in like, film and TV. Um, the last, I mean, you, you might as well, you grow up in yeah. Hollywood. You, just, you might as well do some minor roles on film and TV. I know if the opportunities there, um, the last, I was looking up to see where Grace is now, and the last article I could find was from 2015, I believe, or 16, and it was actually an article about Grace and her daughter, China, and how they both have dealt with alcoholism, and now how they're actually both 17 years sober now. So they, I guess, went on that journey together, and they're, you know, uh, supporting each other in their sobriety, so that was really cool. Uh, the memoir, Somebody to Love, was published in 2006. I believe in the book, though, she says she wrote it in, like, 1998, 1999. Mm. Um, she's still, you know, lying low, painting, enjoying her sobriety. Uh, Paul Kantner. And royalty checks. Yeah. Paul Kantner, unfortunately, passed away in 2016, but her and China are still around. And, yeah, definitely look up her artwork because it's really cool uh, seeing just how – influence she is by like you can still see like all of her love from the 60s she has great ones of janice and jimmy jim morrison and hendrix and all of them amazing yeah so that's that's grace that was uh an awesome episode i loved it i like when i like how you tend to choose two women who are definitely musicians you know not just like strict groupie or muse but they do the crossover of the musician yeah and then they have their own they have their own influences and it's who who they've been inspired by too exactly it's you you're a groupie is not one thing no muse is not one thing they have careers of their own and some are you know, musicians themselves. Amazing. Yeah. That was so good. It's some interesting. Thank you. Thank you for presenting. Of course. So we got Nashville coming up. We've got Nashville coming up. Yeah. Yep. So by the time this episode is airing, we might be in Nashville. It might be the week before. It's, it's like the week of, I think. The week of. Yeah. yeah that's going to be really exciting. We're going to take some videos, mm-hmm. and we're going to maybe do a podcast from the road. So For the sure. last episode of August will be an on-the-road thing, um, and it'll be kind of nice because we'll be uh, we'll go to see Graceland, and last year we did Elvis's 40th. Yeah. Um, you know. We got another Elvis-related one coming up. Mm-hmm. So Lots of exciting things coming up. Some incredible interviews coming oh, yeah. up. Too, oh yeah. On top of the already incredible interviews that uh, we've we've done, so pretty much we're going back into our own back catalog as research, re-listening to episodes of women we've done books on, and then now we're interviewing them. So it's just like it's whole new level. So oh. thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. And uh, rate, review, subscribe. Yeah. Check us out. La 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 la. Twitter and Instagram and yeah 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 yeah. Okay, thank you so much, everybody. See you next week.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read Podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.